rightly distinguishing the law and the gospel is the most difficult and highest art of Christians in general and of theologians in particular. It is taught only by the Holy Spirit in the school of experience. That is C.F.W. Walther, the first president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and the third thesis of his proper distinction between law and gospel. And that is the topic of the Table Scraps today. Welcome back uh, to Table Talk Radio. Uh, Table Scraps is our exclusive edition of Table Talk Radio, in which we have uh, various interviews and uh, other topics as well. Uh, for, so for today, uh, our, our uh, guest for Table Scraps is Dr. Carl Fikenscher. He's Associate Professor of Pastoral Ministry and Missions at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back, Dr. Fikenscher. Thank you, Pastor Gagline. Great to be back with you. You know, it's always great to have you on, but it's especially a pleasure to have you on outside of your usual role as Iron Preacher Judge. There you go. Must <laughs> be doing this as well. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, here, Walther makes this distinction between law and gospel. Why don't you start out just by laying the two out? What what are we? What is distinction? What what's the difference between law and what's the difference between the gospel? Mm-hmm. Well, the entire Bible speaks to us in such a way that it, on the one hand, shows us our need for a Savior, and on the other hand, shows us that we have a Savior in Christ Jesus. When we talk about that Word of God throughout the Scriptures, here, there, Old Testament, New Testament, frequently, uh, that shows us that we need a Savior, we call that the law. It declares to us what God demands of us, what we are to do, what we are not to do, And it makes it very clear that when we fail to do what we should or do those things that we should not, that God prohibits, that there is certain punishment. Um, Death is the result of disobedience to God's law. Eternal death is the eternal consequence of disobedience to God's law. We see, for example, in the Ten Commandments, a summary of God's law, very clear a list of commands from God that have even much, much wider implications than those uh, simple ten sentences. But in each one of those cases, it's commanding us that we be faithful in our marriages, not commit adultery, that we be uh, uh, thankful and satisfied with what God gives us in material things, not steal or, or seek to get the things of others, and so on. All of those are examples of God's law. But, of course, the law shows us what we really are, that we are sinners, that we have fallen short of all those commands, that we do deserve both temporal and eternal death, and then shows us that we are in desperate need of God answering that problem, which he then does in the gospel. The gospel is the message also, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, again and again and again, God telling us that he would send and that he did send his son, Jesus Christ, to become a human being, to live on earth as one of us, to do all of the things that we were commanded to do, that is to fulfill all the demands upon us, and then to suffer by his death on the cross the punishment, the, the, uh, the, the, the penalty for all of those things that we had failed to do. And because Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly for us, because Jesus took the punishment for our sins completely upon himself, we now stand forgiven, we now stand reconciled to God, we now stand to receive all of the blessings that God has always desired to give to us. 
All of that, then, is the gospel. Okay, I got it. And I think uh, some of the kiddos in my church uh, know this as well. So why, then, does Walther uh, spend, uh, I don't know, a better part of two two years uh, explaining this to seminary students? That's right. It was. It was a, it was a year and a half. It was three semesters of time in, in the seminary. Uh, it was uh, advanced, of course. These were not confirmation students anymore. These were his, uh, his men just about to become pastors, uh, lecturing them uh, every week for that length of time. Uh, in our print versions, it's over 400 pages long. Yeah, there's a lot to be said. Why so? Uh, because you're right. Uh, the summary that I just gave is, in, in, in two minutes perhaps, is something that uh, I teach my 7th and 8th grade confirmation kids too, and they grasp very well. Why so much detail? Why so much depth uh, to explore? Well, because this idea of rightly dividing law and gospel or properly distinguishing between law and gospel is not a matter simply of stating simple definitions like we just did or giving an example or two like I just did. Uh, Rightly dividing law and gospel means applying all of this to the real-life situations of people. And that is very, very complex. That means looking at a situation in which we're talking to real people, our, our parishioners, if we're pastors, our husbands, wives, children, if we're uh, living in other situations, um, and determining, is this a moment when this person that I love, this person to whom I'm speaking, needs to be warned of his or her sin, needs to be shown his or her need for a Savior? Or is it a moment when that person needs to be assured that he or she does have a Savior because the law has already done its work? The person is already terrified. The person is already desperate. Now it's time to assure that God will be with that person with forgiveness, with help, with strength, with eternal salvation uh, at that moment. And to analyze what's going on in the hearts of people is always going to be exceedingly difficult. That's why Walther says this is taught only by the Holy Spirit, by God himself, in the school of experience. That is, as we learn about people, as we know one another, uh, we have a better opportunity to consider what's going on in the other person's heart and know if he or she needs to know the law now or needs to hear the gospel at this time. So there are as many variations on this rightly dividing or properly distinguishing law and gospel idea as there are life situations. And we know that in every moment of every day of each of our lives, we have countless new questions, countless new encounters uh, where we just don't know what to do. And each one of those is really a situation for rightly dividing law and gospel. It is that complex. And so it's something that we never really master. We work hard at, but never really master. As you look out uh, to Christendom as, as a whole, um, what are some ways, uh, maybe an example um, of which you see this uh, distinction between law and gospel um, improperly applied? Mm-hmm. Well, for example, um, if, if someone were to come to, to us and say, um, well, describe some kind of life situation. My husband just left me. I just lost my job. Uh, some kind of situation like that. 
in which um, there is great desperation. We, the, the, the person realizes that, that uh, she just, just can't go on as is. She desperately needs God's help. If we were to then say something like, oh, that's just something you should pray about. Well, praying is a wonderful thing. It's something God commands, but it's something God commands us to do. And I didn't mention this before, but it's uh, in, in very simple terms, it's always true that the law is uh, what we are to do or not do. Uh, the gospel, on the other hand, is always God at work. We never are the solution to our own problems. God, in Christ Jesus, is always the solution to our problems. So, if someone comes to me desperate, in need, and I give her or him something to do, then, of course, I've given that person law. In fact, what this person really needs, if she's desperate that her husband has left, if he's, if he's distraught that he's lost his job, is not a, a further assignment of something he is to do. What he needs at that moment is an assurance that God is going to be with him, that God is going to care for him, and that would be gospel. So in this case, if I give him or her something to do, I've confused law and gospel. It was a, a gospel moment, a moment when she needed the gospel, and I gave law. That's a confusion of law and gospel. And, and that sort of thing happens all the time. If, if someone comes and says, I've, I've done a terrible thing, I've, I, I, uh, I, I, I slept with my boyfriend last night, and instead of assuring her of the forgiveness of sins in Christ, we give her the, the, uh, the third degree and try to analyze exactly why she would do this terrible thing, then we have continued to give her more and more law when she was already stricken by guilt. It was time to give her gospel, we gave gave law. That's confusing law and gospel. I I wonder if our listeners uh, uh, see, see a distinction here between the two examples you just gave. You uh, gave the example of perhaps a, a woman who comes to you saying that my my husband just left me, uh, right. versus also uh, someone uh, who said you know I've been I've been you know sleeping with my with my boyfriend for right. for how many months. Um, right. Uh, I, I I can understand how someone would would see that. Oh yeah, the gospel goes to the latter example because they're stricken by the law, but the the former is just stricken by the the circumstances of life. Uh, right. How how does how does the the gospel the uh, forgiveness of sins apply to the former? That's a great question because that really does uh, underscore some of the various textures of law and gospel that we do well to understand. If we think that law and gospel are very simplistic, almost like a cookie-cutter formula, then we're probably not going to preach it in all the fullness that Scripture itself gives us. And this is a common error uh, that, uh, that students as, as prospective pastors have to learn. It's probably something many pastors continue to err on as well. The fact is, law and gospel are, are, are multifaceted. And those two examples I gave really do express two broad ways that we could see law and gospel. Um, a Lutheran theologian now in heaven by the name of Herman Stempfli, known to many people also by the hymns that he wrote, or hymns that he translated from German into English. Herman Stempfli primarily was a homiletics or preaching professor, and he wrote an excellent book back in, in uh, 1990 uh, called Preaching Law and Gospel, 
where he looked at two broad groups of law and gospel examples, and all of these would be from Scripture. Uh, the second example that I gave you, where a, a girl is terribly distraught because she realizes she's been guilty of sin in having sex outside of marriage, um, would be an example where uh, what St- Stempley calls the hammer of judgment law has, has, has hit her very hard. Hammer of judgment is law, which comes up again and again in Scripture, that points a finger at us directly and says, you are guilty of sin. Um, there's so many places in Scripture where this is evident. Uh, for example, um, one of the, the Bible readings that will be used in our Lutheran churches uh, each three years from Matthew chapter 18, uh, Peter asks Jesus about forgiving uh, his brother who sinned against him. How many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? No, 70 times seven. Forgive and forgive and forgive. And then Jesus goes on to elaborate that with a parable that he tells about a man who uh, has been a, a servant of a master and has uh, done badly in his dealings, has squandered uh, the master's money, and owes the master a great deal. He owes him uh, uh, just uh, 10,000 talents in debt. Uh, 10,000 talents uh, is, of course, based on Roman money, but it's expressing a debt that is so big we could never, ever, ever pay it. And then the master forgives him that entire debt. The story goes on to, to say that, that this man, once he's been forgiven so much, then refuses to forgive another servant who owes just a little bit of money. And the master then says, well, that's really wicked. When I'd forgiven you so much, you certainly should have forgiven your brother. Now, in both of these instances, first the, the, the first part of the story and also the last part of the story, Jesus' parable clearly points an accusing finger. It says to each one of us, you owe God 10,000 talents, a debt you could never pay. And it consists of every single time that you have broken one of my commandments, every single time you have failed to love me perfectly, every single time you failed to love your wife or your children or your friends or your boss or the government, every time you have failed to love perfectly as my commandments require, you have created this debt, which you can never pay. And then likewise, if you refuse to forgive others, you yourself again are guilty of sin. That's a new debt that you also owe to God as well as to uh, the other person. In each of these cases, uh, what Stempfli calls the hammer of judgment comes down hard. And when I hear that parable, I look at myself and say, gosh, you know, I, I, I know I've done these things. I, I haven't always been patient with my darling wife, Claire. I haven't always been as faithful a father to my children as I should be. I haven't uh, always uh, put them ahead of myself. I, yeah, I'm guilty. And, and gosh, you know, I, I, I kind of thought those were sort of minor. You know, they, I, I've been faithful to my wife, and I love my kids. Um, and I, I thought that was probably pretty good, you know, close enough. The way I messed up here and there couldn't be that big a deal. But instead, this parable tells me, no, 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 no. Uh, these, these things that you might consider insignificant are actually a debt that is overwhelming. You could never, never pay off that debt. That's the hammer of judgment making very clear to me, 
I am guilty of sin. Just like this young lady in my earlier example had realized that the sin of sex outside of marriage really was a, a, a terrible thing, a debt that she owed to God uh, that she couldn't pay. And then Stempley says, this hammer of judgment law is answered by what he calls gift of forgiveness gospel. And of course, that's so evident in that Matthew 18 parable too. The man owed 10,000 talents and the master forgave him everything, which is exactly what Jesus did by his death on the cross. He took all the times that I was less patient with my sweet wife than I should be, that I was less attentive to my kids. He took the time that this young lady slept with her boyfriend upon himself. And so we stand forgiven. That's the gospel. That's hammer of judgment type of law, in Stempley's terms, answered by gift of forgiveness gospel, again, in, in Stempley's terms. Now that, of course, is the kind of law and gospel that probably comes to people's minds uh, most obviously when they hear these terms and understand these terms. And probably is from most pulpits on Sunday. That's right, and is very appropriate because I've just given one example from Scripture, but again and again and again and again, so many, many texts in Scripture point this accusing finger. All the times the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, uh, all of the times they uh, uh, abused the Sabbath day, um, all of the times that, uh, uh, that, that we are slack in our church attendance, all those things are our examples of this. But then, the other example that I gave you, as you pointed out, quite rightly, is apparently of a different kind of ilk. Uh, I, I gave the example of the woman whose husband has left her, or the man who's lost his job. Now, those are a little different, aren't they? Because those situations aren't ones where the situation clearly calls for pointing an, uh, an accusing finger. If if that woman came to me, if I were her pastor, and she said, my husband has left, it wouldn't be my first pastoral reaction to point the finger back at her and say, see, see, that just proves you're guilty of sin. Now, the fact is, she is guilty of sin. We all are. But she's not necessarily guilty of particular sins that have caused her marriage to break up. That's not really the situation here. Likewise, if a man comes to me and says, I've just lost my job, it's not my best pastoral response to say, ah, see, see, obviously you were fired because you are some kind of dirty, stinking sinner who must have stolen from the company or something. Well, he is a sinner. All of us are sinful. And that's the reason everything goes wrong in the world. But there's no reason to think that there's some particular sin, like stealing from the company, that caused him to be laid off. Now, these also, though, are actual examples of the law that Scripture also addresses. Um, Herman Stempfli, in his writing, calls these mirror of existence law. Uh, by that, he's suggesting that when we look at the world as it is right now, existence as it is right now, we're going to see ourselves in a mirror that is a pretty messy picture. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, our earthly existence has been badly, badly corrupted. Uh, 
Uh, that's why way back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, God said to Adam, from now on, you're not going to just plant the seeds and have crops grow so nicely and easily all the time. Thorns and thistles are going to come up. And Eve, when you have children, it's going to be a wonderful thing ultimately, but boy, there's going to be pain and, and, and anguish in childbirth. Things have been messed up badly in this existence by sin. And frequently in life, we experience the damage that that does. Um, someone loses a job, in most cases, simply because the whole economic system doesn't work so well anymore. Companies aren't able to produce a product efficiently to make a profit, to hire employees, to pay the employees. And so instead, they have all sorts of, sorts of uh, dysfunctions that result in layoffs. And obviously, in the case of a marriage that breaks up, there's always sin involved. But perhaps it wasn't this woman's particular sin, but maybe her husband committing adultery or, or, or her husband simply losing interest contrary to his vow. And so, in each of these cases, situations have come up that are a result of the fallen, corrupted world that we live in, which, of course, is a result of Adam's sin, Eve's sin, and our sins. Now, there are countless examples of this also in Scripture. Um, for example, in Matthew chapter 9, there's the story of a, a synagogue ruler named Jairus who comes to Jesus and says, my little 12-year-old daughter is, is, is deathly ill. Please come and heal her. And even as Jesus is on his way to, to do that healing, uh, another woman comes along and and has been suffering herself from a, a flow of blood for many years. And she comes up and touches Jesus by the cloak, uh, and she also is healed. Well, when Jesus finally gets to Jairus' house, the little girl has died, and as, of course, we know the wonderful result, Jesus raises her back to life. Now, each of these two examples here would be an example of this mirror-of-existence kind of law situation. Jairus has a little girl who is sick, and of course there are countless other examples in Scripture of people who have leprosy or blindness. The woman with a flow of blood is sick. It's not specifically because Jairus or his daughter has committed some particular sin that results in her being ill and then dying. It's not that this woman has committed some particular sin that has resulted in, in her having the, this, uh, this dysfunctional flow of blood. Now, both Jairus and his daughter, and also this woman, they're sinful, no question, they are. And, 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 uh, and things would only happen, th no, no, no evil things would happen to anyone if, if we weren't with, with sin. But the particular text is not calling upon the preacher to look at his congregation and say, see, when your daughter is sick, that's because you or she are guilty of some kind of sin. Or if you yourself are sick with some kind of uh, chronic uh, disease, it's not the moment to say, look, you see, that just proves you're guilty of sin, even though our hearers are all guilty of sin. No, these texts call upon us to look at our hearers and say, these are the very sorts of things that happen in a fallen world. We are all suffering because this world, by our sin, by Adam's sin, by Eve's sin, have all been, been corrupted. 
so then, this kind of law, mere existence law, calls also for the gospel, but in a slightly different way than that hammer of judgment law calls for the gospel. If Jesus had simply said to Jairus, your sins and your little girl's sins are forgiven, that would have been wonderful gospel, but it wouldn't specifically have answered the need that Jairus came to ask about. If Jesus had said to the woman who had the flow of blood, your sins are forgiven, that would be wonderful proclamation of gospel, but it wouldn't be specifically the aspect of the gospel that she was hoping to meet with Jesus at this moment. Instead, the gospel also answers these situations in very definite and specific ways. In these two texts, it resulted in the woman's flow of blood being healed and Jairus' daughter being raised back to life. To the woman whose husband has left her or the man who's lost his job, the gospel also speaks very specifically. Are, is this woman's sin forgiven? Yes. Is the man's sin forgiven? Yes. But also, God speaks to this man, this woman, with very specific application of the gospel, where he says, even though your husband has left, I will continue to be with you. And I will care for you in ways that perhaps you don't know yet. Maybe by bringing him back, repairing your marriage. But if not that, I will continue to be with you, to support you, to uphold you, to care for you emotionally, financially, in all the ways that you might picture disaster now. I will somehow be with you, caring for you. To the man who's lost his job... Uh, there's not an assurance that he will immediately have a job on Monday or 30 days from now when his severance pay runs out. But there is the assurance that God will be with him. God will care for him. God will care for his family, perhaps in a way that we can't picture, and perhaps not even in the way that we would like a brand new job. But somehow, God will be with him. Now, Evan, the, the, the question I think we really want to, to answer then to fill this out is, you know, how is all that really gospel? Should we talk about that a bit? Yeah, how is that gospel? Yeah. Well, it's easy to see how, how the forgiveness of sins is gospel, because we know Jesus died on the cross to take away our sins. But in these other cases, we wonder, well, isn't that kind of far afield from Jesus dying on the cross? And the answer is no. It's not really far afield from that at all. In fact, it is specifically the result of Jesus' death on the cross. And, and, and here's how. I would say, ultimately, what Jesus' death on the cross accomplished was reconciling God and man. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, the real problem was now their relationship with God had been severed. Their sin had driven a wedge between them and God, had actually made them now allies of the devil, of the serpent who had tempted them, 
and enemies of God. And if we are enemies of God, then ultimately we can receive no good thing of any kind. Because as James says in his epistle, every good and perfect gift comes from above. God is the one who gives every good thing. If we were to remain separated from God, then we would have no husband, we would have no job, we would be, t- we would be uh, uh, continually ill, we would be continually in death, eternal death. But when Jesus died on the cross, he took away the sin that had driven that wedge between us and God. Jesus, by taking our sin upon himself, brought us back together with God, reconciled us to God. And when, on the other hand, we are with God, back together with God, then nothing keeps God from giving us everything he wishes to give us. And he wishes to give us everything that truly is good for us. That includes, of course, eternal life in heaven, but it also includes his care for us every day in the meantime. As I said before, God giving us every good thing doesn't necessarily coincide with what we think is every good thing. When we've lost a job, we definitely think the good thing is a new job. When a spouse has left, we definitely think the good thing is to have the spouse back. Now, God sometimes knows that there is a more perfect way for each one of us, even after these results of a sinful, fallen existence, to make things as he intends for, for us. Um, in other words, Jesus' death on the cross, because it took away our sin, doesn't just declare forgiveness, it declares a wonderful blessing of forgiveness. And the wonderful blessing of forgiveness isn't just that we get to live forever with God in heaven, it's also that we are reconciled to God, back together with God, and receive his perfect care according to his perfect will every day from now through eternity. And by the way, Stempfli, when he describes this kind of gospel, the gospel that gives us um, a repaired existence, he calls that antiphon to existence. An antiphon to existence gospel has immediate, immediate relevance in, in day-to-day life, day-to-day uh, existence. Uh, and it, some, it would be something that we would want to assure that woman of, that man of, uh, if they were to come to us in those pastoral needs, you you mentioned. Um, I guess what what I, what I like about uh, what you've just set up uh, is that the the comfort here is is not found in um, the Almighty God's will for us, though He does have a will and He is certainly Almighty. Right. But the comfort in what you're describing is not in in God above, but in God below. Uh, yes. That 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 it's it's found in the cross. And uh, so you mentioned that uh, that that enemies of God receive no good thing. Um, yet we look around it and certainly see, uh, as, as Luther says, that that God even gives His daily bread to all evil people. Right. Uh, so doesn't this, what you're describing, um, necessitate a theology of universal atonement in order for for this to work? 
Absolutely it does. And that's a great point because the reality is the entire world has been reconciled to God. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't just die for those who would eventually believe in him. He didn't just die for those who would finally be in heaven. He died for everyone, and everyone's sins have been removed. Uh, When the rain falls on the believer and the unbeliever alike, when the sunny day comes for the believer and the unbeliever alike, in both cases, it's because God is reconciled to all of mankind. The unbeliever, who, who thinks he gets the sunny day just because of a random chance result of, of a Big Bang uh, eons ago, is in fact receiving that sunny day because Jesus, by his death on the cross, has reconciled also this unbeliever to God. God really has reached out and embraced this unbeliever and once again loves and provides for him. The great tragedy, of course, is that the person who doesn't believe this, who doesn't believe that Jesus has given him all of this by his death and resurrection, will miss out on the eternal blessing that also is there for him. Because Christ opened the door to heaven to everyone. And and tragically, many people, because of unbelief, will remain outside that eternal joy. They'll receive countless blessings from God now in life, not realize why they're receiving them, and then ultimately be separated from God for eternity after death. That's something we don't want to happen to happen to anyone. It does happen. It's going to happen in countless cases. But that's something that we as believers in Christ want to do our very best to avoid by telling those around us that everything they receive, of, of course, ultimately, eternal life in heaven, is because Jesus has died for them. And that's a reality. Jesus had died for every person and reconciled everyone to God. So just as we receive uh, these second article gifts by the death of Jesus, it's also by that same death of Jesus that we that we receive these first article gifts. That's um, exactly it, right. It, it's, it's, it's not that there's just a, a nice grandpa in the sky giving us first article gifts, but this, but uh, if you want the second article gifts, you need, you need the blood of Jesus. They're both by Christ's sacrifice. Exactly. When we speak of, of first article gifts, as Luther puts it, we're talking about clothing and shoes, meat and drink, house and home, all of those things, those material things that we uh, have around us, that we receive so generously that sometimes we take for granted. You're exactly right. It's not as if those are just the... The, the showerings of a uh, of an indulgent grandfather, but those are the gifts of a God, a Father, who has been reconciled to us by Jesus' death on the cross. When we talk about the second article gifts, we talk about forgiveness, life, salvation. We re- we know those come from the cross, but you're exactly right. So do all those other things also from the the Father in heaven who has been reconciled to us by what we talk about in the second article the Son of God, suffering and dying for us. Uh, you've been very generous with, generous with your time. Uh, I appreciate it. Uh, do you have time for just a couple more questions? Sure. Okay. Uh, I just want to clarify for our listeners that you aren't then uh, dividing the law um, or pitting the law against each other between this hammer of judgment and hammer of existence, but, but, but both of these um, are, are properly heard in the preaching of the law. Absolutely, exactly. Hammer of Judgment and Mirror of Existence are both biblical uh, examples of law, and we've given you, given you examples of that. Uh, uh, many, many texts in Scripture point the finger and say, you are guilty, 
uh, other texts point the other texts rather describe to us the situation we're living in. The fact is, uh, we are living in that corrupted world, that that fallen existence, because with Adam and Eve and all people, we are sinful. Our sin is behind all these problems, uh, but this is simply a different aspect of the law that particular texts emphasize, while at other times we would, uh, would preach the hammer of judgment. So they're not uh, in any way pitted against one another. Uh, they really are, are better understood as examples of how uh, very multifaceted this law and also, of course, the gospel really are. I remember uh, on Vicarage, uh, there was a point where I really started to struggle in my preaching because I don't quite, I don't, I didn't quite have this distinction in my mind. And to no fault of your own, you tried your hardest in the seminary classroom. Uh, it just didn't quite stick after the first two years. Uh, but however, uh, I remember there was a point where I was really struggling with my preaching because I would, uh, I would come to a text that would really have the a proper preaching of a mere existence law. But I thought. In my preaching, if I did not deliver a hammer of judgment law, I was preaching no law at all. Uh, and so I was wondering, is, is there then a temptation for some of us to either uh, preach hammer of judgment really when mere of existence should be a, a better preaching, or maybe the, the answer then, or there's a temptation to avoid the, the preaching of the law at all, because it, it doesn't seem to apply, so we just don't preach the law. Right. Uh, both real temptations, and the answer really is to preach the text. If we preach the variety of texts, and our, our uh, Lutheran lectionary used by, by uh, most other Christians too, the, the uh, schedule of readings uh, through the Bible over a three-year period or one-year period that we have, if, if we just preach those various texts and week to week preach whatever is particular in that text, we're going to cover week after week both Hammer of Judgment some weeks and Mirror of Existence other weeks. Sometimes there will also be both of them in the same text. But certainly we'll, we will preach both over a period of one year or three years um, very, very fully by simply preaching what the texts themselves say and not thinking that we have to force something on the text uh, that really isn't in that particular text. And lastly, Dr. Frickensher, just summarize for us uh, this, this glorious gospel that we come to, to, to church every Sunday to hear week after week when uh, both we, we've uh, run afoul of, of this, this law that, that God sets before us, but also when after a, a, a long week where we've just lost our job or are struggling with, uh, with the loved one uh, who is dying of cancer. Uh, summarize in for us this glorious gospel which we come to church to hear. Yes, because Jesus died on the cross. Everything that separated us from God, our sin, has been removed so that now we can always be certain that God is with us. He has forgiven our sins by Jesus' death, and because he has forgiven our sins by Jesus' death on the cross, he will always be there with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. And that includes once we die, but it also includes every single day in the meantime. Jesus' death on the cross has restored our relationship to God brought us back into the wonderful relationship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden before they first sinned, so that every good thing that a perfectly loving God desires for us to have is ours. Dr. Carl Frickensher is Associate Professor of Pastoral Ministry and Missions 
at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Thank you, Dr. Kincher, and blessings to you and your students as you begin a, a whole new year. We're excited about it. Thank you so much, Evan. Great to be with you. So that is uh, this glorious gospel that Dr. Perkincher so uh, wonderfully articulated there, that by the death of Jesus, we have the real forgiveness of sins. But that forgiveness of sins has uh, a meaning, uh, certainly, we, 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 we uh, by the forgiveness of sins, uh, can expect the, the, the glories of heaven uh, and eternal life uh, with, uh, with God and, and all the saints who have fallen before us. Uh, but also that glorious gospel means something for us here and now, uh, that that God is with us through these trials. Uh, Jesus says that that we carry our cross and uh, that that this burden is now an easy and light burden. That 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 by the death of Jesus we have also uh, this promise that 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 God will never leave us nor forsake us. Uh, and that is certainly a gospel that applies uh, to us. Uh, in the here and now. Thank you for listening to this edition of Table Scraps, production of Table Talk Radio, and look forward to other podcasts right here at tabletalkradio.org.